Good morning, everybody. To remind you, I'm Mike. I'm the interim pastor here, and if you're watching us on live stream, we're really glad you're tuning in. It occurred to me that it's been a long time since we gave a thank you to our singers and our pianist and worship director, Joe, over here. Could we just thank them for their service to us? Um, they're very faithful. They show up every Sunday morning, and I just think they need to know how much we appreciate what you do for us. So Charlie read our text this morning, Hebrews. We are looking through the book of Hebrews together as a church in this season. Hopefully finish it sometime in June. And today, I want to talk with you. In fact, I want to give you a quiz. I want to start off with a quiz this morning, okay? I want you to fill in the blank and see if you know what the words are that go in these blanks. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. All that glitters is not gold. A rolling stone, you guys are good. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Don't judge a book. He who hesitates, the indicative always precedes. <laughs> ah, I caught you. That's a new one, right? I want to teach you a, a statement this morning that will possibly change the way you read the Bible. The indicative always precedes the imperative. And you're scratching your head and saying, what? What? Did you know that, Tammy? All right. The indicative always precedes the imperative. Now, what, Pastor Mike, what in the world do you mean by that? What I mean is this, that in the scriptures, God always tells us what's true about us. Then he tells us what we are to do because of what's true. Does that make sense? In other words, he tells us who we are. And then he tells us how to live. The indicative is who we are, and the imperative is how we live. Another way of saying it is, God tells us what to believe, and then he tells us how to behave in light of that belief. Do you get it? The indicative is what's true of you and what's true of God, and the imperative follows after that and tells us what we are to do in light of who we are and who God is. You see this throughout the Bible, but particularly you see it in Paul's letters. If you've read, for example, I'll pull out Ephesians as an example. In Ephesians, uh, God, uh, Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians talking about our spiritual blessings, right? What you've been given uh, the fact that you've been chosen, that you've been adopted, you've been saved by grace, you've been given access to the Father, you've been loved with a love that is wide and long and high and deep. See, all of those are the indicatives. They are what is true about every believer in Jesus. And then Paul switches gears in chapters 4, 5, and 6 and tells us to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. See, that's the imperative. But the indicatives come first. The truths of who you are and who God is come first, and then the imperatives follow after that. The same is true here in the book of Hebrews. 
The author has spent the past nine and a half chapters telling us who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and who we are in Christ. And then he sums those things up in verses 19 through 21 of our text. Did you notice in the first two or three verses of the text that Charlie read, the author of Hebrews kind of summarizes everything he said so far. Look at that. He says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. That's the indicatives. And there are two in there, see? Two indicatives that the author of Hebrews uses here in this text to summarize everything he has said so far. First indicative, we have confidence to enter the holy places. That is, we have access to God. Second indicative, we have a great priest over the house of God. So you might say that we have access and we have an advocate. Okay, those are the two indicatives. Well, now we're ready for the imperatives. In the rest of this text, the author of Hebrews tells us how to live in light of those two things. In fact... In the whole rest of the book of Hebrews, he's going to hit a lot of imperatives. But don't you dare ever get the order reversed. The indicative always comes before the what? The imperative. See, in the Bible, it's not do this and then God will love you. It's God loves you, therefore do this. Makes a world of difference, doesn't it? It's not... Obey the commandments and then God will accept you. It's God accepts you because of Jesus. Therefore, out of the security that that gives you, out of the unconditional grace of God, obey the commandments. Do you get that? Don't ever get the order reversed. Don't put the imperative before the indicative. Because the moment you do that, you know what? You've just traded in Christianity for a religion of works. And that was the danger that the people that this letter was addressed to were being tempted to fall into. A system of works, righteousness, that says, do this, then God will love you. Do that, then God will accept you. No, no, no. It's the opposite. God loves you because of Christ. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you've turned from sin and said yes to Jesus Christ, God loves you. His Favor is upon you and nothing will ever shake that favor off of you out of that security that that gives you. Now go live for his glory. The indicative precedes the imperative. Now in the rest of this message, I want to talk about those imperatives in verses 22 through 25. There are two imperatives that flow out of the two indicatives. What are they? Very simple. Draw near to God and draw near to other people. Now, that's our outline this morning. Very simple. Draw near to God, draw near to other people, especially the household of faith. So let's dive in and look at imperative number one. The author of Hebrews says, based on the fact that we have access to God and we have an advocate in heaven, draw near to God, just like Charlie was telling those boys a few moments ago. Look at verse 22. Here it is. 
the author says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now let that sink in for just a moment. And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the people to whom this letter was originally written. Do you get how shocking that statement had to be to those ears in the first century, those Jewish ears. Because these Jewish Christians had been taught all their lives that you dare not draw near to God. They had grown up in this system that said you can't get close to God because He is too what? Holy. He is too distant. You're too unclean. You're too unqualified. Only the high priest can draw near to God. And that only one time a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. They knew the Old Testament stories that reinforced that idea. For example, the story about God coming down on Mount Sinai. Remember that? And he warned Moses to go back and tell the people that if anyone dared come near the mountain, they would what? They would be killed. They would die. Don't you come close to God. They also knew another story that's a little more obscure. You may not know this one, but it's a story about a fellow by the name of Uzzah. U-Z-Z-A-H. Uzzah one time touched the Ark of the Covenant. And he was immediately struck dead by God. Again, to say, don't. You dare come that close to God because God is too holy and you are too impure. But, okay, so do you get it? How this statement is so stunning and so shocking? Because now, says the author, a new day has dawned. Jesus has come and he has died and paid the final sacrifice for sins. And he has made a new covenant with you. He has broken down that wall between you and God and has ripped the curtain apart that separated the holy of holies from believers. A new day. Now, now listen, God has not changed. The God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed. He is no less holy, no less fearsome now than he ever was. But what's new is that Jesus has bridged the chasm between us and God. He lived the life that you and I are supposed to be living. He died the death that you and I deserve to die because of our sin. And through faith in Jesus, that means putting yourself in the hands of Jesus and saying, I trust you and what you did on the cross, not my good works. Through faith in Jesus, you and God can be friends. You and God can come close. So draw near, the author says. Draw near God. See, this is radical because any thinking person, this is exactly what Charlie was communicating to the kids and to all of us just a few moments ago. Any thinking person, when confronted with the holy presence of a holy God, Anybody would want to get as far away from that as possible. Why? Because God is omniscient. He knows everything about us. We are completely exposed to Him. I might be able to hide, to, uh, hide from you guys. 
I might be able to put on a religious smile and say religious words and, and get pats on the back for being very spiritual and godly. And all the while, God knows who I really am. We're kind of like the wizard in The Wizard of Oz. Everybody has seen that movie, right? Dorothy and Toto and uh, Scarecrow and Tin uh, Woodsman and Cowardly Lion. They all want to get to the Emerald City where Dorothy hopes to find her way back to Kansas. Well, they go. finally they get to the wizard. And there he is in this awesome splendor, you know. But Toto, the little dog, runs over to the curtain and grabs it and pulls it back. And then all you see is this old guy that uh, is nothing like what he pretends to be. And he says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Well, I want to tell you this morning, God is paying attention to the men and women and children behind the curtain that we are. He knows us way beyond anybody else. And he knows us even better than we know ourselves. He's not impressed with our facades, our attempts to look pure and holy and nice. We might try to hide from God like Adam tried to hide from him in the Garden of Eden, but it will not work. He sees behind the curtain, doesn't he? He sees into our secret sins. He knows our dark wishes. He knows our evil intentions. Those are the things we cannot hide from a God who knows all and sees all and is everywhere. And because he's that, because he's omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent, our instincts tell us to run, get away. I don't want you to know me. Why? We don't even like going to the doctor and being examined by a human doctor, much less a sovereign God. But then that's when the gospel shows up. See, do you get how radical the gospel is? Because the gospel says God took all those sins that you are ashamed of, that you sometimes feel you must hide from people and from God. God took those sins and put them on Jesus. And he punished Jesus for them instead of punishing us. So Jesus became our sin and our curse Remember what we learned last week, if you were here, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're dressed in the very righteousness of Christ, so that when God looks down at you, he sees his son, and he says, you're gorgeous, you're handsome, you're beautiful in me. See, he doesn't see that sin, he sees Christ, because now you're presentable inside and out, so don't be afraid. Draw near God. You don't have to run and hide. Go to God with your prayers. Go to God with your doubts and your questions. Go to God with your sin. Go to God with your fears. Go to God with your needs. At any moment, in your car, at work, in your bed, wherever you are, you're always able to draw near God because He has drawn near to you in the person of His Son. A hundred years or so ago, a guy by the name of William Sleeper wrote a hymn about this. I think we actually sang it one time, didn't we, Joe? Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Into thy freedom, gladness and light, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my shameful failure and loss, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come into the glorious gain of thy cross. 
Jesus, I come to thee. That ought to be our attitude all the time, 24-7. Jesus, I'm going to come to you right now. I feel alone, Lord, I come. I draw near God. I feel like I've failed. I draw near you, God. I feel that no one loves me. I draw near you, God. You love me. See, you take every need, every want, every fear, every sin, every failure to God because you can draw near to him. Well, that's the first imperative, and that's a great one, isn't it? We love to draw near God, but here's the second one. And in some ways, it's a bit more challenging because the author of Hebrews says, not only should you draw near the Lord, but you should draw near other people, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're going to talk about this now. You might say, oh, wait a minute, Mike, I kind of liked point one. Can you just skip over point two? Because does this mean I have to like everybody in the church? No, that's not necessarily what it means. But it does mean you need to reach out to everybody. Oh, that man over there? I don't think I can do that. That woman over there in that other pew? I'm not sure I can do that, Mike. Well, you're not talking to me. You're talking to God. (laughs) And God says, draw near your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look with me at verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, the Bible doesn't give you the option of loving God but not loving other people. Would that it did, right? But if you are one who names the name of Christ, you are called by God to love others. Uh, It says in 1 John chapter 4, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Makes sense, doesn't it? The gospel calls you and me not only to move toward God, but to move toward others in the body of Christ especially. And in particular, those who worship with you in the same church. So let's bring this down home real close to us. This is Grace Church, right? Some of you are members. Not everybody's a member, but this is the community known as Grace Church. You've all come either a long time ago or maybe just in the last couple of weeks. So you are now part, this little part of the body of Christ at 1111 Tuscawilla Road in Winter Springs. What does this text say to you, Grace Church, about drawing near to each other? Well, let me put it in three ways that I think you can remember very easily. It's going to say, stir up, show up, and cheer up. Okay, if you can try to remember those three things as you go forward in your life as a church, it might really help you to grow more in love with each other and more attractive to the community around you. Stir up, show up, and cheer up. Let's start with stir up. Look with me at verse 24 again. The author says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, focus on that word, those words, stir up. At least that's what it is in my version. Yours may say, spur on. 
Does anybody have that in your Bible? Spur on one another. It's a Greek word, paroxysmos. Now, the only reason I say that is you may be familiar with an English word, paroxysm. Have you ever heard that? Paroxysm or paroxysm. It's a sudden violent outburst of action or emotion or a sudden increase in intensity. That's what a paroxysm is. The Greek word is related to the idea of something that is sharp. So it means to goad, G-O-A-D, or spur. Now, if I were a horse, if you were a horse, you probably wouldn't like somebody spurring you on, would you? It would be, it would be painful. It would be sharp. But that's the word used here. We, Christians, are supposed to stir up one another almost to the point of irritation or sharpness. Um, it's from a Latin word that meant annoyance or irritation. So the author of Hebrews is saying, in a way, irritate each other, annoy each other in a good way. <laughs> right? Um, have you ever heard the term whip used in relationship to a congressman or a congresswoman, right? You know about majority whip and minority whip. I used to wonder what in the world does a majority whip do in Congress? Do you know? You ever, ever heard about this? Or a minority whip. Those people are called party enforcers. In other words, their job is to make sure that members of Congress are present to vote on important matters before the House. And both houses of Congress in Washington have majority and minority whips. Men or women who are appointed to be the ones who stir up the Congress and spur each other on to do what they're supposed to do, what they've been elected to do. Uh, originally, the term comes from a hunting term. I looked this up. A hunting term, whipping in, which was to prevent hounds, you know, hunting dogs, from wandering away from the pack. And so you're supposed to whip them in. Well, that's what our people in Congress do. They are majority whips. They whip in the people of Congress that are supposed to be doing what we've elected them to do. What does this mean to you and me? It means we're supposed to hold one another accountable to the things that we are obligated to do as Christian men and women. You're supposed to call each other to a higher level of belief and behavior. You're supposed to notice. You remember the hunting dogs? The hunting dogs had to be whipped in when they started wandering, wandering away. You are supposed to notice when someone is wandering away from the pack, i.e. church, and go out after them and say, where are you? We miss you. Are you okay? See, that's calling each other up to a higher level of behavior. You can't just blow them off. You can't just check out and say that's somebody else's job. No, all of you are whips. If you are a member of this church, you are obligated. You can't just ignore it when you see your brother or sister wandering from the path. 
You can't leave it up to elders to do. You can't leave it up to your new pastor after you elect a pastor. It is your job. So that means you are, as people of Grace Church, supposed to be constantly thinking, how can I goad my brothers and sisters toward love and good deeds? What is my role in stirring up Grace Church to a higher level of belief and behavior? It's not an option. It's verse 24. Let us consider how to do it, right? I'll give you an illustration. Somebody stirred me up the other day. They annoyed me in a good way. (laughs) I was having breakfast with a friend, and he said, how's your walk with the Lord going these days? Ooh, suddenly I was a bit exposed, right? Suddenly I felt the spur Because he said, tell me, what has God been teaching you lately? See, that's a great question. That is stirring me up to love God and to grow in Christ. It doesn't have to be annoying to be stirring someone up. But it does have to stir up and spur on your brother or your sister in Christ. That's what stirring up means. Second, remember I said there are three. Stir up. The second one is show up. If you're going to draw near your brothers and sisters here at Grace Church, part of the duty is to show up. It says that in verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Wouldn't you agree with me that the habit of some people who are Christians, professing Christians, is to neglect public worship? Throughout our country, people are losing heart or losing commitment to their own local churches. We live in a day when people hop from one church to another, looking for better music, a better youth program, better preaching or whatnot, and church attendance is considered to be one of many options on Sunday morning. Some people say, I'll see you at church unless my kid has a ball game. Unless I'm tired, unless there's yard work to be done, unless I think of something else I would rather do. (laughs) You know, we say about church attendance what we would never say about civic organizations that we are members of. Isn't that kind of ironic? The church is kind of low on the priority list. I read a a statistic that said on any given Sunday, 25% of church members don't show up for worship. So that means no church is ever full. Maybe it's three-fourths full on a Sunday morning. Might be less than that. Who knows? But it does say... Now, some of this is understandable, especially in the age of COVID. Uh, It is tough. It is perhaps not even healthy for some people to come to church on Sunday morning if they have big uh, concerns about COVID and so on. But... uh, Some, though, it says in that verse, are in the habit of neglecting worship. And that's a different matter altogether. I've noticed that some of you show up maybe once or twice a month. And I think you need to think about that. I think it's important 
that the members of a church be together on Sunday and commit themselves to the worship of God. Show up. If there's a work day, if there's a congregational meeting, if there is a time of fellowship being advertised, God says show up. Okay? That's number two. Number three, how do we draw near? Not only do we stir up people, like I'm probably stirring you up right now. (laughs) Anybody annoyed with me already? (laughs) Uh, Show up. And then thirdly, cheer up. Cheer up. Look at verse 25 again. It says, not only not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, that Greek word for encourage is something we've learned before. Parakaleo. Parakaleo. Come alongside. Exhort. Comfort. Cheer on. That's what that word means. And it's in the present tense. Encouraging each other. You don't just encourage once or twice. You're always to be encouraging people in the church. In other words, we're supposed to always be going around looking for someone to encourage or to minister to. That is, am I thinking always in the back of my mind, who needs a listening ear today? Who needs a shoulder to cry on today? See, those are questions that we should be asking. One thing I've noticed about you is that you really take seriously people's prayer requests. I notice on texts that I get regularly that people are always praying for somebody in need. I want to encourage you. That's wonderful. Way to go. See, that's great. That's a way to cheer up uh, the people of Grace Church. So let me draw this to a close and just say, what, what is the author saying? The main thing he's saying is that Christians need each other. Christians need each other. We were not meant to be walking the Christian walk alone. I can't do it. I'll be honest. I can't do it by myself. You can't either. And so we must draw near each other. Have you ever seen the movie March of the Penguins by any chance? It's really a fantastic movie about penguins. You'll learn a lot about them. I knew nothing about penguins before I watched that movie, and I learned a lot. Uh, You know, penguins live in the harshest and most uh, the coldest environments in the world, and yet they survive. How? How do they survive? They're warm-blooded creatures. If their body temperatures go down very much, they'll die, and they don't. They survive. Well, part of the answer is that when it gets cold... They huddle in groups. And here's the neat thing about how they huddle. In the innermost parts of the huddle, that's where it's warmest. But what they do is they don't let you just stay in the middle. They're always circulating so that penguins on the outside of the circle eventually get to be on the inside. And then after they're on the inside and get warm a little bit, then they go back out on the outside. And they're always circulating like that, and everybody gets a turn inside the innermost sanctum. It's a great illustration of how we Christians are just like penguins. We live in a very brutal environment. We need each other. And so let us huddle up and make sure that everybody's needs get met eventually. Genesis 2.18 says it's not good for a man to be alone. 
And the same is true of every one of us. It's not good for anyone to be alone. So I urge you, the people of Grace Church, this is, a, this is an important time to kind of get things in order. Uh, not to wait for a new pastor to help you get things in order, but you can do it yourselves by concentrating on the things that we've talked about today. Drawing near God, drawing near each other, stirring up each other to love and good works, showing up for worship and opportunities to serve, and cheering up your brothers and sisters in Christ with encouraging words and actions. And we're doing that this morning as we come to the table. We're drawing near God and we're drawing near each other. I invite you to this table this morning if you are a believer in Christ. This is your energy food, if you will. This is what you and I need. It's not just physical food. It's tokens, symbols of the body and blood of Christ. Let's pray and ask God to to bless what we're about to do this morning. Father, we're so grateful that we can draw near you. You have uh, broken down the wall that separated us from you so that we can come boldly with access into the very holiest of holies. And you've also broken down the walls that existed between us and other people. No matter their race, no matter their uh, socioeconomic level, whatever it might be, thank you that we are one in Christ. We who know Jesus Christ are one body. Father, we pray that this morning you would help Grace Church and every Christian church to move forward in drawing near each other. Uh, This world is so hopelessly divided that the church has such a great opportunity now to show the world what it means to love each other. And I pray that Grace Church will be an exemplary body of Christians, a group of people who stir up each other uh, to a higher level of obedience, who show up when opportunities exist to worship and serve, and who cheer up each other with kind words and compassionate actions. Lord, would you help us to participate in this great opportunity to be the church in in an important time. And I pray now that you'll bless this meal, separate these common elements of juice or wine and bread for the special use of being means of grace and reminders of your covenant love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.